Welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast breaking down the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And we are glad that you are here with us, Sam, here at the end of all things. After a long and often unexpected journey, we have arrived at the season one finale of the Rings of Power. We have trekked from the frozen north to Numenor to the Southlands, from Linden to Eregion to Casa Doom, and we are here to unpack the finale and all of its twists and turns. We're joined by two of the major players in the finale. We have Charlie Vickers, who plays Halbrand and is revealed to be someone a bit more sinister. Uh, And we have Daniel Wayman, our bearded stranger who's been journeying with the Harfoots all this time. Those are super fun interviews and we'll get to those a little bit later. Uh, But first, we're going to break down all the big reveals in the finale. I'm EW senior writer Devin Kogan, and I am joined as always by my co-host, who I really hope is not secretly Sauron in disguise. Christian Hollow. Christian, welcome. Hey, Devin. So here we are, not quite at the end of all things, but certainly the end of season one of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. And some of the mysteries that have been lingering over this entire season and this podcast have finally been answered. And I hope you'll forgive me for taking a bit of a victory lap since I did (laughs) 100% accurately call Sauron's identity a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm quite happy with myself for uh, figuring that one out. You are correct. I was more skeptical. I wasn't 100% sold. Um, I, I thought I had a couple other ideas. Um, you know, you were out last week, but but this was something Chuck Kerr and um, who who guested with us uh, and I talked about. Um, I was like, I see it, but I'm not sure. Like, I don't know. I still have a bunch of questions. And here we are. You know, we we learned that uh, you were right. I yes. I admit defeat. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, because the point is, I was right. <laughs> all right, podcast over. We can go home. This is all just about <laughs> telling Christian he was correct. No, I tried, I tried multiple. You know, I tested out several theories about various different aspects right. of the show over the course of this podcast and also my recaps on EW.com. Not all of them were correct, but definitely one of the big ones I did get right. And, and I think I got it from a, a, perhaps an unexpected place. Like It was really kind of his interactions with Adar that tipped me off. Yeah. which came in an episode that was focused on a lot of other things. That was stuff that was easy to miss. Um, but I would also say that, you know, the, the thing that Gilgalad said to Elrond in, in the very first episodes about his vision that uh, Galadriel was going to end up helping Sauron instead of destroying him was so strange and unexpected that it really stuck with me. And, and I really kept that in mind. And after a certain point, you know, Paul Brand was kind of the only one who who fit that bill. You know, Elendil obviously isn't Sauron. And and I also like I didn't want Adar to be Sauron. I really as yeah. as we know, I am Team Orc and I love <laughs> Adar's whole philosophy and, and found that all really interesting. So I'm glad that he was indeed a, a separate character with kind of a different attitude. Yeah. So I mean, let's talk about this reveal. I think it's done in a very interesting way. It's a departure from kind of the the expected lore. Oh, sure. Well, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of that. Um, you know, kind of going into the show, the the sort of general narrative that Tolkien wrote about is um there was this elf named Anatar who sort of um, ingratiated himself with the the elves at Eregion and sort of manipulated them and encouraged Celebrimbor to forge these these rings of power. This is a this is a pretty major departure from from the canon in that we we never hear the name Anatar, um, but there are you know similarities. You know we we hear Anatar is referred to as the Lord of Gifts, and there's a very you know strong line where where Charlie Vickers tells. 
Calabrimbor how to make the rings. And Calabrimbor's like, wow, how can I ever thank you? And he's like, call it a gift. And it was like, oh, come on. Okay, fine. Yeah. Well, this episode, <laughs> obviously, they're, they're being really on the nose with it. Um, Very much so. Like, because for, for, first of all, Hallbrand's characterization in this episode is so different than how he has been in the previous episodes. So you're like Galadriel, you're raising your eyebrow, like, wait, what's, it, what's going on? Right. Wasn't this guy like almost dead? You were just dying. And now you're like, ooh, this is a cool forge. How, do, <laughs> yeah. how does this work? Like, ooh, Celebrimbor. Like, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Tell me everything. Um, and Celebrimbor is such a, like, he's so susceptible to flattery. He's like, I will tell you everything, mysterious Southlander who just showed up at my door, you know, two hours <laughs> yeah, ago. Exactly. Um, but I actually really like the way this reveal was done. I love the bit about Galadriel being the one to figure it out because she is the one who has been the most duped by him. You know, she does the research. She finds out that there is no king of the Southlands, which honestly probably could have told you. I love that she was just like, you're the king of the Southlands, clearly. And he was like, yeah. oh, yeah, totally, sure. It was pretty weird. <laughs> like, even and even with me, where I thought that, like, Sauron's spirit was inhabiting Halbrand or something, like, I thought that Halbrand was a real person because... I don't know, Galadriel went into the Numenorean archive and was like, there's a king of the Southlands. And then yeah. she goes into a different archive and it's like, there's no king of the Southlands. And I also thought it was a little weird that, you know, you've brought up on this show many times the, the parallels between, the implied parallels between Hallbrand and Aragorn as two kind of royal heirs who have spurned their lineage for one reason or another and also like to have sweaty, greasy hair. So, you know, in the show, especially almost as it's gone on, I feel like in the season has delved more and more into kind of direct paraphrases or quotes from Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And so Galadriel says something when she's like, when she learns that there is no King of the South, she says something like the line was broken years ago, yeah. almost identical to what Saruman says about Aragorn, but it's not true in the Aragorn case. And it is true in this case. So I was just like, Okay, whatever. There's a lot going on in this episode. We've had some episodes that seemed like they were treading water a little bit or like kind of, you know, as I pointed out early on, there were two episodes that basically ended the same way. We're going, Numenorians are going to Middle Earth. And so, and instead, so much plot is covered over the course of this one episode that Very at a certain so. point, you kind of just have to roll with it. Yeah. And I love what you said about, you know, I think Charlie Vickers' performance here is totally different than what we've seen before. You can yeah. almost see the... Like, I wish I'd seen more of him in, in like, Sauron mode. Yeah, it, this was interesting. This was something he talks about in our interview where he talks about sort of, you know, kind of relaxing into the idea of, you know, he's not just a human. He's one of the Maiar. He's, you know, been here for centuries. And you can see it in his performance. And I love the way his, like, performance shifts as soon as he realizes that Galadriel has, has, is confronting him and, and has figured it out. And I, I really loved that whole scene of their confrontation. I love that it's not just them sitting by this beautiful river in Eregion, he sort of like warps her mind and they're back on the raft and then they're like all these different places and like he sort of shows her. Yeah, good bookend stuff. I mean, goes back to the first yeah. scene of the season, Galadriel's kind of childhood memory in Valinor. This was maybe the most interesting scene to me, kind of Sauron and Galadriel talking in this dream space. And to a certain degree, it, it made me wish like, you know, we'll get into this with like our season two predictions there's ways in which I think that the story will be more interesting once these kind of manufactured mysteries are out in the open. Like I, I yeah. love them talking as who they actually are. And and like you said, Vicar's performance is lighter and cooler and, and he's digging in deeper now that he doesn't have to pretend to be a different character. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for everyone to listen to my interview with, with, with Charlie because he, he talks very much about how, you know, 
for him, you know, they call him Sauron the Deceiver. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, this idea, he, he has a great line where he says, well, he's kind of the great, world's greatest method actor. He's kind of like Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> and then he like, you know, kind of, I don't want to, you know, spoil our own interview. But but I, I just thought it was very fascinating to this idea that, you know, is the Sauron that we meet as Halbrand, is he repentant or is it all a smokescreen? And I, I think that can be kind of left up to different interpretations. Um, you could make the argument that, you know, this entire time he's been manipulating people to get what he wants, which is to, you know, get to Aregion and, and regain power. Or you could make the argument that, you know, he really was, you know, sort of just there and wasn't, you know, just just hanging out. And, and it was Galadriel who sort of swept him back into this world and sort of pushed him to, you know, she essentially pushes him to be like, you are a ruler, you are a ruler of men, you belong in the Southlands, yeah. which are now Mordor. And so I, I, I kind of like that he kind of throws that back at her and is a little bit like, well, you, you made me this. And it's kind of, a, it's a, it's a fascinating dichotomy. He asks her basically to, to take his hand and, and rule alongside him as the queen to his king. And, and I don't think it's in a romantic way. And, and, you know, I think Charlie Vickers says something similar. Um, but it's, it is this idea that, you know, they, they do recognize a, some sort of kinship in each other. And I find that very, very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, maybe it would be nice if there was a little more romantic sexual tension, considering how much time this the season kind of devoted to their relationship. Oh, I don't know. I think there's sexual tension, but I don't yeah. think it's like I think like yeah. would I like to see them kiss? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but exactly. like uh but I don't think it's like I don't know. I, I I think it's the perfect level of like there's a flirtation and there's an interest there, but it's not like you know, like sort of classic, like I rule by my side. I, I love you. You know that kind of kind of thing. You know, I, I I like the the sort of. There's clearly an attraction and interest there, even if it's not like a purely romantic one. It's it's there's it's just two people who are very fascinated by each other and can't seem to stay away, which I think right. is an interesting interesting dynamic. Right, and perhaps one reason why Galadriel has so single mindedly focused on her hunt for Sauron for the last several centuries is to kind of repress other desires or ambitions she might have. You know, we had the, the mention of Celeborn in last week's episode. Um, but we also have once again, you know, as you say, Sauron offers her to be his queen and and it's very clearly a paraphrase and an homage to Galadriel's iconic monologue, which I know you love from Fellowship of the Ring, where she uh, is tempted to be a queen. Terrible In place of the a dark dawn. lord, you would have a queen. That is Galadriel's, the biggest weakness or darkness within her is that she does have this desire to, to dominate and to rule. And she will eventually have a kingdom of her, uh, you know, a small kingdom of her own. So that's another thing that connects them. And then as you're saying, Sauron's the deceiver. And even though she rejects his offer, pulls herself out of the dream space, you know, I think we can assume is is renewed in her dedication to defeating him. She then goes on to deceive like him yeah. and that she doesn't tell the truth about who he was, which is a plan that can't possibly backfire. And of there's no way not. that That's... his knowledge of how the rings were forged will allow him to create some kind of, I don't know, master switch or <laughs> thing. Um, you know, it, as much as we, obviously, this show really wouldn't exist without Galadriel, and she is the driving engine, but yeah, it's hard not to be like, well, uh, Gilgalad was right, and you should have just gone to Valinor. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I love that you brought that up, and and I, one of my favorite lines in the Silmarillion is where they talk about why Galadriel chose to 
you know, sail west and leave Valinor and and join her people as they as they went to fight Morgoth and and you know, retrieve the Silmarils. And and it, it's it's a line that's something like she yearned to see the wild, unguarded lands there and rule a realm there at her own will. Like this is Tolkien always wrote that she does have an ambition. She does have a desire to to rule. And and I think that's something that you know, Halbrand Sauron picks up on and is, is, is that he knows that that's, you know, a tempting offer for her. And so, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that she's sort of just like, okay, I messed up. Maybe if I just like, he's gone, forget yeah. about it. Don't ever ask me about it again. <laughs> Maybe if I just pretend that it never happened, it'll all be fine. And the interesting thing is that Elrond figures it out too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he fully knows that she he is Sauron, but he clearly knows that he's a bad dude and is has manipulated Galadriel in some way and is not to be trusted. Um, both of them sort of just like share this look and they don't tell Celebrimbor, who's just so excited about the rings. He's like, I don't even uh-huh. care about anything. He's just like, let's just like look at my cool forge and all my rings. Right. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think this is setting up some interesting tension for, for season two because... Well, let's talk about the rings. I mean, yeah. the title is The Rings of Power. And we finally got some. It looks for a second there like we might get through a whole season of Rings of Power without any Rings of Power. But These are true. We got a little bit of a, a rushed catch up at the end. This is the name of the show is All Rings Considered. So so let's yeah. consider some rings. Um, before we dive into this, it's, it's relevant to this, which is this is not a prediction I was right about, but I am glad that my extended talk on a previous episode about how Sauron, as you mentioned, is is a Maya, but not just any Maya. All the Maya followed a certain Valar. And before he joined with Morgoth, he followed Ale, the Valar of craft and forge making, who is the creator and patron saint of dwarves. And I'm glad I said that because you really see him putting his Ale teachings to use here and even kind of impressing Celebrimbor with his knowledge of forge making. You know, the name of the episode is Alloyed, a play on allied mm-hmm. and, and alloy, which is when you combine different metals. And uh, apparently Celebrimbor hadn't considered this, but Sauron t- tells him that, hey, you know, you don't have enough mithril. Well, one way to make it work would be to combine it with other metals, and that won't necessarily dilute it. It'll actually make a stronger fusion. And so they put that with Sauron's knowledge, but eventually without his physical presence, they put that to use. Forging the three rings, which are, for my money, the most interesting rings. One thing I hope for from this show, as we'll get into later, is I hope we actually do see more of the the seven yeah. dwarf rings and the nine rings of men, because we only have kind of the vaguest idea of what they do or what their powers are. But we know a lot about the three rings, and I'm sure you were as excited as I was to see the colors of the gemstones that they were all fitted with. And I thought it was interesting just Celebrimbor talking about how you know, I don't think he says the word Silmarils. He has before, but mm-hmm. when Fionor forged the Silmarils, it was a way of capturing the beauty and the power of Valinor. And Celebrimbor, what he wants to do with these rings is do the same for Middle-earth, which is less of a heavenly realm than Valinor, but has its its own strengths and elements. Uh, because the rings are elemental, not the four elements of Avatar The Last Airbender fame. <laughs> But as they go on an interesting discussion, they choose specifically choose three rings and what are the elements they are imbued with, Devin? We have Narya, Nenya, and Vilya. The first is is Narya. That's the the red one with the the sort of red gemstone in the center. Um, that is the ring of fire. It has sort of a golden band. 
And this one has an interesting kind of path. This is one of the ones that that if you've read the Lord of the Rings, um, we actually know a lot of the people who who carry this one. Um, it's originally given to one of my favorite obscure elves in in Lord of the Rings, Kirdan the Shipwright, the only elf with a beard, which is like my favorite weird detail. Noticeably missing from the show so far. This is true. But the showrunners have said that Kirdan is going to, they have confirmed that he's going to show up in season two. So I am very excited. You know, we've talked a lot on the show about like, I think you can play with the lore. I'm happy to have some some departures from those. But if he doesn't have a fantastic beard, I'm going to be really <laughs> mad because that's like the one thing. Anyway, that's a totally off-topic thing. But he's the original wielder of the Ring of Fire, Narya, and he eventually gives it to um, uh, Gandalf, who is a familiar figure if and someone I know we will be talking about a little bit later. Um, so that's the Ring of Fire. The second ring, uh, we've got Nenya, which is the one that is, is it's called the Ring of Adamant, or it's also known as the Ring of Water. And this one is the one that is wielded by Galadriel. Um, you know, we see her wearing it in, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, that's part of what is attributed to her her power and her ability to keep Lothlorien safe and, and magical and, and, and beautiful. But, you know, kind of counteracts, you know, some of the effects of the the one ring, you know, keeps Lothlorien hidden and, and things like that. And then the final ring uh, is Vilia, which is the blue ring. It's called the Ring of Air. And that one is given to Gilgalad, our, our good friend over in Linden. Um, of course, years later, Gilgalad, you know, bites the dust. and it, it Spoiler. Goes, spoiler alert for, you know, the first five minutes of... Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring, and it goes to uh, our, our boy Elrond, who who uses it at the time of the Lord of the Rings. So um, those are sort of the the basics of of the three rings. And and again, you're I think you're totally right. I mean, these are other than the one; these are the three rings that Tolkien wrote the most about. We, they have names, they have colors, they have, we we know details about them. The others. You know, the seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone and nine for mortal men doomed to die. Um, we don't know details. We don't know the names of the rings. We don't necessarily know the bearers of these rings. But but Tolkien was very clear about the three elven rings were very powerful and had important legacies of their own, which is interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, we see the, the three elven rings here. Um, we haven't seen the one ring yet. We haven't seen the seven or the nine yet. These are the first ones forged and they are forged with some input from Halbrand Sauron, Hal Sauron, Sarbrand. Sarbrand. And, um, but he is not there at the actual, he doesn't have a hand in the actual forging of them. So they're sort of untouched by his evil. They're sort of influenced by his evil, but not much. He doesn't have a physical hand in, in crafting them. Whereas the idea is, as Tolkien wrote, that, you know, he had a hand in crafting the seven and the nine. Um, and then obviously he crafted the one by himself, which is why it was so evil and so powerful. But Yeah, I mean, I mean I've been looking back into what is written of the rings and their forging in Fellowship of the Ring and Silmarillion. So I can write an article for EW.com that should be up by the time you're listening to this. Um kind of about how Tolkien writes about their forging and what we're seeing in this. And the elves participate in the forging of the rings, but I'm pretty sure they're the only ones that do. He's Sauron's going to forge the rest of them himself and basically give mm. them out. Like you said, the Lord of Gifts is going to give seven to dwarves, nine to men. And the thing about the one ring is not only does he forge it himself, but he forges it in secret and it's the last right. one. So after he's given all these rings out, he completes this like I call it, kind of master switch skeleton key that can control all the other rings. 
It has less power over the three, though it does have a connection to them. They mm-hmm. use them. They talk in fellowship about, they don't talk about the rings that much. They they use them in ways that they can. And Elrond is, as recent as the Council of Elrond, Elrond knows that the destruction of the One Ring will inevitably coincide with the, the destruction of the three elven rings as well. That right. all the rings will go with the One Ring and that by defeating Sauron, the elves are basically sacrificing themselves because the three rings are the only thing keeping their power and their magic active in the world. This lends to me a level of kind of tragedy and pathos to the elf story and their role in Lord of the Rings that is very much there in the books, but is alighted a little bit in the movies. And I understand why I think they just, for you know, as you say, we, we see the rings, we see Galadriel's ring. But they don't talk about them that much, I think, because, you know, again, you didn't before Fellowship of the Ring hit theaters, nobody knew if this was going to go over. It was legendarily an impossible to adapt book. So I think for simplicity's sake, the movie makes this choice, even in the extended editions, to just really focus on one ring. So the audience isn't kind of like, wait, which ring is which? But that is very much there in the books, which is very which I've always found very cool when I revisit them. And one thing that I find very interesting about the show is that and and with all this stuff fresh in my mind is that when Elrond is kind of explaining the three rings at the Council of Elrond, he says that one of the major things that separates the three rings from the one ring and the other rings, you know, as you know, the the actual power that the one ring has and that the other rings have is is kind of elided and vague even in Tolkien's writing. It's very undefined. People talk yeah. about it as a weapon. It's totally unclear how it would even work as a weapon. Um, right, it's not like it shoots laser beams at you or something. Right. Although what you do see through the eyes of various ring bearers and stuff is that it does have, it controls the mind, it dominates the mind, it works on your soul, it, it brings out kind of your most evil or selfish parts of you. And it is made to control the other rings and to control minds. And it is it is made for domination and control and Elrond says that what separates the three from that is that um, they are not made in that, that their power instead of domination controls about preservation and um, you know kind of community building and and stuff like that and healing, which is what separates them from you know Elrond by the time of Lord of the Rings is renowned as a great healer and and I think it's safe to say that his wielding of the ring is a big part of that. What I found really interesting about this episode in light of that is that Sauron is saying to Gladrion, and again, you have to take everything he says with a grain of salt because he is the deceiver, but he at least says to her that healing and preservation is his goal as well, and that he wants to heal the scars of Middle-earth that are wrought by Morgoth. You know, this is a story he will change if and when we see him back in Numenor exerting his control over Numenor, he'll kind of make them believe that Morgoth is the real god and then the Valar, the actual demons and stuff. But the way he's talking about Morgoth in this episode was very interesting because it makes it seem like, you know, not only was his impact on the Three Rings about their form and forging and making metal alloys, but that he was also interested in preservation and healing and and repairing Middle-earth. Again, who knows with him, but... Uh, I certainly thought it was very interesting to hear him say that. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And and something that Tolkien actually wrote quite a bit, that the Sauron of the Second Age actually was repentant um, in many ways. You know, you can question how much he meant it, but, um, you know, there this this is a, a Sauron who is not yet the, the world domination kind of dude he will become in, in the Third Age. He is 
you know, there are examples of, of him repenting, but there are also examples of him repenting or pretending to repent um, yeah. as a way to sort of ingratiate himself with with different people. Yeah, he's very good at that. But there are there are moments, especially out of of fear and 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 cowardice, you know, the idea that he he does feel guilty and he feels, you know, wanting to essentially save his own skin out of out of repentance. So I'm I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of how Brand is sort of his his repentant mode. Like he's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna be this human. And you know, if we if we take what Adar has said is true, that you know he killed Sauron's body and you know he's now adrift on that's how he wound up somehow in the middle of the Sundering Seas. But again, I mean, it all comes down to it's a he is the deceiver. How much can you trust of what he says? How much can you trust of what what Adar says? How much? It's it's kind of fascinating, and I'm curious whether season two will bring more answers about that, or whether right. it just sort of just or keep like it, keep it kind of keep it kind of unclear and, and, and mythic, yeah. and and because I think there's there's benefits to both. On one hand, I'm like, okay, explain it, but also I'm like, I, I get why you know, like you, you he is the deceiver. His whole goal is to pull the wool over other people's eyes. So um, I'm torn because on one hand, I'm a little like, okay, like once once you started to lay out your theory and we're like, okay, this is why I, I think he's Halbrand. I was like, I think he's the most logical option, you know? I mean, because mm-hmm. who else would it be? We knew pretty early on that it wasn't the stranger who we'll get to very soon. Right. He's not any of the other characters we've met. The only other option would be like, okay, well, maybe we haven't met him yet. And maybe he's just hanging out in Region waiting to be like pop up in the season finale and be like, "Hi, I'm Anatar," and everybody's like, "Oh no!" Right, <laughs> um, right. Which is kind of the the way that I thought they would go, and and so in in that regard, I I'm kind of fascinated by by this choice, and I, I think it ultimately works. And I, I think for me, what makes it work is you know kind of seeing that deception in Galadriel and seeing the kind of because she's the character that we've sort of followed since the beginning and watching her sort of realize that this person that she's trusted and not only trusted but but saved and you know lifted up and literally delivered into the hands of, of her people um, is is her greatest enemy and and I think that's an emotional storyline and and the other thing that I think makes it work is that I think Charlie Vickers just gives a great performance I like we, we talked about that shift as soon as he's revealed you know you can see it in in his face and his eyes and his voice and um, so that's that's what makes this whole reveal work best for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that the evidence, you know, as, as I've said, I've, I felt that the evidence was pointing that way. And I think it's an interesting way to go. Some of the timeline compression that the show has to do by virtue of its structure is maybe a little confusing. Like it's kind of hard to track yeah. what is going to happen in what order when. And I was a little bit like, whoa, he got to Mordor super fast. He got, he just like, wa- he left Eregion yeah. and just walked back to Mordor. Yeah. Like, I guess one simply can walk into Mordor yeah, if you are if Sauron. You, if you're literally Sauron. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm with you that I could definitely use a little more explanation of, of how exactly he arrived at this body and, and how his confrontation with Adar went. You know, it's hard with some of this stuff. Like, so much of Tolkien is is literal and is imbued in the the trees and the flowers and walking on these long journeys and stuff. But a lot of it is, is kind of mythic and, and vaguely defined. And the movies famously made this choice to literally represent Sauron as a giant flaming eye that like, if you're, if you are in Mordor and you look up, Oh my God, there's a giant flaming eye at the top (laughs) of this tower, which is not, a hundred percent like like kind of how he is in like the eye of sauron is kind of figurative you know as opposed to a literal flaming eyeball you know to to use books that came out later it's like big brother or the panopticon or something it's it's kind of this metaphor for 
a despot or a dictator's um, surveillance. But in that case, they made a very literal choice. So um, these are other areas where the show can choose to be literal or, or vague. Yeah, one of the one of the the notes that I I, I liked is when you know Killebrimbor throws the the mithril into the the giant swirling pot of, of gold and, and silver out to to make an alloy. Um, as it swirls around, it's like oh that's a flaming eye. Like yeah. uh, there there it is. You know? There you go. We we love a callback. Yeah, I'm certainly the show does because uh, they do a lot of them. Um, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of candidates offered for is this Sauron fans online had uh, a lot of fun over the course of the season trying to guess uh, who may or may not be Sauron. Certainly the one that the show kind of wanted to use as a red herring was the stranger, I think, as the the biggest yes. second candidate. He shoots out of the undying lands right at the end of the first episode in a way that spurs Galadriel to continue her quest for Sauron. Uh, so that was suspicious. The fact that our understanding of the arrival of the Astari in Middle-earth was that they came by ship and literally were greeted by Sirdan versus being literally shot out on a meteor was a little distracting. And then this episode tries to give you the last-minute fake-out of having the trio call him Sauron to his face as the first thing that happens in this episode. But as we know, that's not true, and he is actually a different character we know. So let's let's talk about this. Let's because talk about this. been interesting is that Okay, so I watched this episode, and we get the Sauron fake out, and then you know we we get the the reveal that he is actually one of um, the Astari, who are the five wizards who we've talked about a lot on the show: Saruman, Gandalf, Radagast, and the two unnamed blue wizards. And then everything else that happens after that points to one very specific member of the Astari, who we have talked about many times on this show: uh, Gandalf. Watch, he's Gandalf. Yes, he's Gandalf. But here's the weird thing. When I talked to Daniel Wayman, he wouldn't confirm whether or not he is Gandalf. Oh, uh, the showrunners have given interviews and said, eh, well, you don't know. We know he's one of the Astari. And some people online are still theorizing. But I'm like, come on. He's Gandalf. Just he's say Gandalf. it. You don't have to say the G word. But like he's, you know. But they, do, I, I, but they do say it. His last line. They don't call him Gandalf. They don't call him Oromir. But he literally says Gandalf line. I know. And in the same way that I was, you know, in the, when the show makes quotes, like Galadriel quoting her her famous speech, you know, always follow your nose. That's a Gandalf quote. Classic Gandalf. Communing with fireflies. That's a thing only Gandalf does. Loves halflings. Um, loves halflings. Like the evident, like if they continue to try to string along this mystery, and I mean, there are things in the lore. I don't know. It's just, it's hard to tell what they're hewing exactly one-to-one -to, -one to the lore and things they're changing up because... Gandalf is supposed to be the last wizard who arrives in Middle-earth, yeah. not the first one. But again, like I said, he's also they're also supposed to arrive by boat. He arrived in a flaming meteor. So those details seem up for grabs. But if you're going to have him literally say exact Gandalf lines. Yeah. He says something about, I'm looking, I want you to share in this adventure. You know, I mean, he like, says, come on. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> when he says, go back to the shadow. 
And yet, you know, nothing was bad in the beginning. Like, you know, even Sauron was not so, to, to, to quote you know. Elrond. Um, Saruman was good at first, if, if that's who they want us to think he might be. But the only other thing that gave me pause is so, you know, the, these, these cultists, these, these mystics, um, you know, sort of point him in the direction of Rune, which is a, uh, a, a distant land far in the east. Um, and that's where the Blue Wizards are most known to hang out yes. um, in, in Rune. So the fact that, you know, the episode ends with, with our still unnamed stranger and Nori, uh, you know, going east to Rune. That is the one thing that made me think, okay, maybe, maybe he's a Blue Wizard. But still, he's Gandalf. Yeah, he's, he's Gandalf. Gandalf. You can't you can't engage in that level of like having him quote Gandalf lines and do Gandalf things if to then reveal like halfway through season two that he's Saruman or Radagast or whatever is just engaging in bad faith. So if if that's what the show is doing, I'm not a fan of that. But Christian's laying down the line. I'm, laying, he's like, I'm he's Gandalf, drawing a line. You, it's Gandalf. Yeah. And and that's not to say that. <laughs> Like, bring in the other Istari. I, I want to see them all. Yeah. Like, nobody wants to see the Blue Wizards more than I do. And I hope that this trip to Rune will involve meeting them. But, you know. Yeah, Christian loves wizards. I That's love wizards and I love the color he's blue. obsessed with wizards. I love blue. Wi- I want to, there's nothing I want to know more than the Blue Wizards. This is a perfect example of something that is in the lore and is not elaborated by Tolkien that they can explain. But, you know, it, it, the Blue Wizards are also a, a pair. I, I find it hard to believe that a really tall guy and a small Harfoot traveling into the East would be known or regarded as equivalent wizards or beings. Maybe that's what they're going for. Are you saying Nori might secretly be one of the blue wizards? Or that she would be thought of as one by observers in the East. I mean, we don't know anything about Rune, really, um, which no. is why we don't know anything about the blue wizards, because that's where they spend all their time. So I would love them to, to the blue wizards to show up and them to like meet them in season two um you know we'll get into our our predictions in a little bit but yeah so i just think that obviously he's gandalf and and instead of trying to draw out that mystery just show the other star like bring the other star in too that's that's what i would like to see i, I agree um but here's a question for you yeah because this is a prediction i was wrong about so if gandalf is a wizard and is the Astari. Who are those three white weirdos that he beat? Because I predicted that the leader was Saruman and even thought that the other two might be the blue wizards. They're not. They're opposed to the wizard. They serve Sauron when they are defeated by uh, Stranger Gandalf, Strandolf. Um, They look (laughs) for a sec like the Nazgul when seen through the eyes of the One Ring, seen in their true form. But obviously the Nazgul don't exist yet because the Nine Rings don't exist yet. Do you have any thoughts on who these goofballs might be? They are goofballs, aren't they? No, I, I, I'm curious about this because um, I had, this, I, I sort of always assumed that they were, you know, kind of like cultists, um, you know, because we, we know Tolkien wrote that there was a, a cult of Morgoth, there was a cult of Sauron, there were th- these, you know, either humans or like, you know, just, just different figures who, who worshipped Morgoth and Sauron as, as gods, essentially, and you know, basically. I don't know if they were necromancers, but but they had some. It's it's implied that they were like priests or or had some sort of you know like um, you know cult like organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the vibe that I got. You know, that's something that that Tolkien never really elaborated on. But 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 there is you know that's sort of my thoughts is that these are just people who are. I don't know. They've been worshiping 
Sauron for a long time. I mean, but but the interesting thing is is this bit about the the, the constellation that you know they've been following. They they know the constellation that the stranger is seeking. So I'm curious. I I feel like we will be getting more answers about them, if not about them specifically, but like what their deal is um, in season two. As as uh, I hope so. And maybe Strandoff maybe goes Strandoff. to Rune. Maybe they're from Rune and, and that's where their organization is based or whatever. Because right. obviously they, they use magic. The lead Eminem looking guy uh, manipulates yeah. fire in both of these episodes, this week's and last week's, kind of takes it in, breathes it out. Shape-shifting abilities, which is something we associate with Sauron. Yeah, and a magic staff, which is associated with yeah. the Istari. Um, even, you know, when he's, when he's kind of throwing the stranger around with the staff, that's obviously evocative of... Gandalf's battle with Saruman in Fellowship of the Ring. So they can't be humans because humans don't have that power. The only beings that we know to have powers like that are the Astari, which they are not. So as much as we've gotten answers in this episode, there are still questions that need answering, to quote Gandalf, real Gandalf. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's one of the the threads I'm, I'm interested in. But should we say a... Uh, some R.I.P. to our wise old Harfoot leader. Yeah. Oh, Lenny Henry. That was a lovely, lovely bit. I loved um, that broke my heart. I mean, I I had a feeling one of them was going to bite, bite the dust. We haven't had any, you know, super major deaths yet. Um, you know, we Sildor is is the one that that you know they're they're mourning, but we know he's. He's somewhere. He's hanging out. To quote what you said about Gilgalad. It's not a spoiler that Azildar lives. It's the first five minutes of Fellowship. I can't believe that they're extending this into the end of season one. Like, are they gonna are they gonna put a bag over Maxime Baldry's face when he's like on set <laughs> and doing press for season two? Like, I just don't understand the point of this. And and that's been kind of a frustration is that they have the, all these original characters that they've created for the show who aren't in the lore and they haven't killed any of them they've done that they've and they've done this fake, except for lenny henry except for lenny henry and they've done this the, the only one they've even done this fake out on is the one who, who perhaps above all that we you know besides galadriel and elrond we know will survive into lord of the rings and so i am glad that we finally got some some pathos and and some a tragic death with an original character it seems like we are perhaps kind of done with the harfoots in general it's just going to be nori and Strandolf. So that's a way, I guess that's a way of saying goodbye to them in general. I was sad to say goodbye to Poppy. She's been one of my, I like, I love Nori, but Poppy has been low key. One of my favorite parts of the Harfoots. Yeah. That really surprised me that she's not going with them. I thought for sure she would do a, you know, Mr. Frodo, I'm coming with you. you Me too. Um, And, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw her again, but I thought for sure she was going to go on this journey with them. Me too. Um, I'm a little disappointed that she's which not. made me sad. Yeah. I was like, I love their dynamic with with her dynamic with Nori. I love the both of their dynamic with the stranger. Like, I, I would have liked to see this little trio setting off to to Rune. Yeah, she's the one that sang the song too. Who's going to sing know, now? More songs. Yeah, that's my that's my main goal for for season two is i want more songs but um you know i, I thought the the sadak burroughs death scene was beautifully written um i i found that very moving all of the stuff with nori's goodbye i found really lovely 
Um, I'm going to miss the Harfoots. I, um, yeah. I I hope we get to spend some more time with them. That's not just Nori, um, who I who I love and can't wait to see more of. But yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of our wishes and hopes and dreams for uh, what we want to see in season two? Yeah, let's do it. We've kind of been mentioning them throughout a little bit. So, you know, I guess I'll just reiterate that I want to see more Astari, more wizards. You know, if we're bringing them in in the second age, bring them all in. Let me see them. And let's find out more about the East. You know, this show has kind of been stuck in this weird dichotomy between the stuff that it's adding to the Lord of the Rings mythos and the stuff that it's adhering to. And kind of the whole thing that everybody involved has said from the beginning is that the whole reason they wanted to do the Second Age is because, you know, it has some defined moments, beats, but overall was relatively unexplored by Tolkien compared to the First and Third Ages. So I think going east, going into Rune, maybe showing some blue wizards, is a perfect (laughs) opportunity to explore stuff that's not there at all, that they have freedom to totally add stuff. You know, we'll see Strandolf kind of going on his journey. I think like both with, with both of these overarching mysteries that are now resolved, the identities of Sauron and the stranger, even if they're trying to keep the stranger a little big, um, I'm looking forward to them being who they are instead of yeah. constantly trying to, to fake us out. Like I said, I love how Sauron is in this episode. And I, I happened to be at New York Comic Con last weekend covering it for EW. And there was a Rings of Power panel. There wasn't really much to write up because that cast is, they only had one episode left and that cast was extremely tight lipped uh, <laughs> about what may or may not happen in the finale. Um, but Daniel Wayman was part of the panel. And that was the first time I'd like heard his voice, obviously, because he's like mute in the, yeah. um, in the show up to this point. So the moderator of the panel, Felicia Day, said this. He has a beautiful voice and a, and a wonderful voice. And it's great to actually see him talking and acting like a real human being and a real character instead of kind of this stumbling mute. So I'm looking forward to both those things. Now that both those characters are kind of out of hiding and are who they are, I think that'll be better, a better story. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, because I think the first season has a very, it's a its a tough, tough act, right? You have to not only build this world for the ground up, but you have to win over audiences. Um, you have to sort of please the the super nerds like us and, and also the people who have, you know, maybe watched like one Peter Jackson movie or have very little familiarity with, with Lord of the Rings. And, and now, you know, we've spent eight episodes with these characters and we know them and we know who they are and what they want and, and what their interactions are. And so I'm excited to, you know, I, I really fell in love with the show over the first season and I can't believe we have to wait <laughs> such a long time yeah. for it to come back. Um, I'm glad that we can, you know, it's sort of, you know, hopefully the show can really, really hit its stride now that we've, you know, the introductions are kind of out of the way. I mean, we'll get some, some new introductions, obviously, as, as the series go on, goes on. But, you know, we, we know these characters, we know what drives them, we know what their relationships are. Um, I know for me, my, my, you know, there, there are a few new figures that we know we're going to be seeing. Um, Kirdan the Shipwright is, is showing up somehow. I would not be surprised if we see Galadriel's husband, Celeborn, sooner rather than later. That seemed like a very pointed, you know, bit in episode seven where she's like, I never saw him again. Well, you're going to see him again at some point. The question is when. And I want to spend more time with these characters that we've we've gotten to know and, and really fallen in love with. I... I've said this before, but for me, everything happening in Cause of Doom is like my favorite part of the show so yeah. far. I love... It's kind of a bummer to not get a check-in with them. Uh, I this know. Episode. Elrond and Durin is my favorite 
thing ever. I'm just obsessed with Elrond. I love Robert Arameo's performance. Um, I love Owain Arthur's performance. And I love Sofia Nombete's performance as Disa. I she is a total standout for me. And so that those are my hopes for for season two is is more of of that trio. I just want to watch them hang out and argue over stone tables and <laughs> who saved who from trolls. Yeah, I'm I definitely want more from the kind of Khazad Doom family politics. Yeah. Since I wasn't on last week, I did. I thought that the glimpse of the Balrog was maybe a little heavy-handed around the nose, um, because I really liked that kind of being the implied underlying of that whole family debate, that the king seems like he's being conservative and that we shouldn't expand or delve into this new resource. And right. his son and his wife are opposed to that and are saying it's our time to kind of take control of the kingdom and, and take advantage of this new resource. And I love the underlying dramatic irony that, you know, if you knew nothing else, you would root for the young people as you do. You know, it's almost like a succession thing. You know, who's going to side with the old dinosaur? But then the old dinosaur is <laughs> right because the, the mining yeah. of Mithril will eventually awaken the Balrog, eh, who I guess is already awake, and destroy Khazad Doom. So I've loved that and I'm looking forward to that. I love, like you've mentioned, uh, Sofia Nombede is Princess Disa. That's a character who initially seemed just kind of warm and friendly and domestic. And by the end of this, by the end of last week's episode was fully giving me like Lady Macbeth vibes. So I'm loving that dynamic and definitely want to see more of it. And then this won't come as a surprise uh, to, to anybody who's listened this week and, and the last couple weeks, but uh, you know, team orc, I'm looking forward to the, the coming power struggle between Adar and Sauron. I'm, I'm yeah. I want to know more about, how the orcs are, are terraforming their new land. I would love there to be like actual kind of political debates going on among the orcs that, that Adar seems to be, have kind of led them, you know, not in a nonviolent or pacifist way, because obviously they had to kind of clear out the Southlands of humans t- to make this land for themselves. But the stated goals are are living and, and having a place of their own rather than domination of the world, which is what the right. orcs are always up or just killing like in The Hobbit or, or Lord of the Rings. You know, presumably Sauron will be coming in with his temptations as he always does and, and tempt them back to the path of, of domination and power. But I would really like to see that explored and kind of different, you know, one of one of everybody's favorite moments in Lord of the Rings, uh, looks like meets back on the menu, boys, comes out of this debate between different factions of orcs about what to do with Merry and Pippin and how to get to Isengard quickest and stuff. So orc debates can be very fruitful, and and I would certainly love to see more of that. I totally agree. I, I you know, I, I just want to see more of this cast across the board. I've been so impressed with, you know, Joseph Molly's performance as as um, as Adar has been incredible. Um, we've talked a lot about how much we love Charlie Vickers. Um, I mean, everybody in Numenor. Like, I, I'm I'm very curious to to see sort of where season two goes because again, the thing about the show, and we've talked about this since the beginning, is we know the bones. We know kind of where it ends. But the question is, how does it get there? And it, 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 it's interesting that there are some surprises along the way and um, sometimes some deviations from the lore, yeah. some, some condensing, um, and sometimes some, some new inventions um, to sort of fill in the gaps, um, and sometimes some very faithful, uh, you know, retelling. You know, I, I'm, I've really fallen in love with the show, and I'm, I'm, again, I can't believe we have to wait. I'm, I'm not good at waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do any more of it. Yeah, it's a bummer to to have to wait now that a lot of things are kind of finally gotten interesting. 
Um, I know. <laughs> but you know, there's Project. always there's always the movies, there's always the books. If you've been intrigued by by some of the lore or or Celebrimbor mentioning the Silmarils and and uh, you want something to do before season two, there's a great time to read the Silmarillion because every time's a good a good time to read this. Every time's a good time to read the Silmarillion. You know, I was talking with with someone recently, and this is something I've heard before from my own dad, who I've tried to get to read the Silmarillion and stuff. And and people sometimes say that it that it feels like homework. You know, it feels like more like the Bible or a religious text or a history book instead of the pure adrenaline adventure. You know, amazing entertainment that Lord of the Rings is. And I think the way that I originally kind of overcame that was by wanting to do homework and wa- wanting to learn more about about Middle Earth and the mythology. So hopefully this show has kind of put you into that mindset. And if it has, um, it's a great time to to check out the Silmarillion. This is not the last you'll hear of All Rings Considered until season two. We will have a couple more updates for you. We've got some fun stuff in the works, so stay it's tuned. Some fun stuff in the works um, about fantasy TV and Lord of the Rings in general. So stay tuned for that. This isn't the last you've heard of us. But hopefully you've enjoyed us talking through uh, every episode each week. You know, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who have kind of been waiting for the season to finish to, to catch up on it since we're all a little more used to watching Lord of the Rings as kind of several hours of entertainment instead of one a week. And so if you're one of those people and you're you're catching up on this later, you know, weeks or months after uh, this finale has come out, I hope you've enjoyed uh, taking this journey with us. It has been a, a most unexpected journey, but also <laughs> a joyful one. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, you can hear our interviews with Charlie Vickers, who talks all about playing one character for most of the show, and then the Sauron reveal, and our interview with Daniel Wayman, who talks about bringing the stranger to life, and you can hear his beautiful voice up close and personal for yourself. So stay tuned for that. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Please enjoy our interviews with Charlie Vickers and Daniel Wayman. Thank you so much for joining me, Charlie. I'm so excited to talk to you about this huge oh, finale. No worries. Thank, thank you for taking the time. It's, it's nice to be able to, um, to discuss it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you have kind of been a walking spoiler for like the last, you know, couple <laughs> years. I mean, take me back to... When you first got clued in, when you were first cast in the show, did JD and Patrick <laughs> sit you down and say, hey, so you're playing Sauron? No. So I um, I had, let's think, I had maybe six or seven auditions, right? Um, and then 
I got to the end of the audition process and they gave me two monologues. They gave me a monologue from one of the Henry plays, Henry the Henry the Sixth, Part Three, I think, Richard the uh, Third, at the end when um, he's standing over a body and he is basically being really evil. And then the other one was um, from Paradise Lost, the poem by um, Milton, and it was literally Satan. So I had an inkling then when I was doing those speeches that the character had some kind of a dark arc, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, after our hiatus, so we filmed the first two episodes um, and then we went on a hiatus because of COVID. That whole time I thought I was playing Halbert, human from the Southland, which I think, I, which I was. But then the guy sat me down right before we started filming the third episode and said to me, um, there's more to this, you're playing Salomon. And by that point, because of my audition material and a few other things, I had an inkling, um, but it was nice to get it properly confirmed, I think. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so did your fellow castmates know your true identity or was that kept secret? No. So no one knew. Uh, who knew? I think Morvith knew because she was my scene partner. And I think that's an interesting thing about Halbrand is you really only see him through the eyes of other characters. Um, so they play a very important role in how the audience sees him and how the audience then see Sauron. So Morvith knew, uh, but yeah, no one else knew. It was a very, I've been holding in, obviously come the end of the season, a lot of, a lot more people knew. And now I think most of the, the whole cast know, uh, but it's going to be nice that we'll be able to share it with everyone else soon. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm, I'm so, that's so fascinating to learn that, you know, you, you, you played those first couple episodes without knowing this and, you know, throughout the season, we've seen a Halbrand who, you know, like you said, we've seen him through Galadriel's eyes primarily. He seems like he's someone who wants to redeem himself and find a new path. Do you, do you think there's some truth in that? Or do you think it's all, you know, kind of a smokescreen? What, what do you make of sort of his journey over this entire season? I think it's fascinating to look at. Um, and I think it's interesting because Tolkien speaks of Sauron as repentant. He quite clearly says that he is repentant and he's ashamed. Um, he says it in the Silmarillion. He says it in um, some notes in Morgoth's Ring. But he always puts the word out of fear, the words out of fear, right after repentance. So, and I think fear can lead one to genuine repentance. Um, and I think he fears the gods and he fears retribution. He kneels before Ionwe and is humbled and, and brought low. So I think Halbrand is an example of him in this repentance stage. And whether or not you, review, you view that repentance as genuine completely colours his actions of the season. Because you can look back at his actions and they can be genuine repentance and it all makes sense. But if you look at him as uh, manipulating everything and using Galadriel to bring him back, of course, there are some coincidences that happen along the way which play into his hands. Um, but he is able to manipulate people. Um, I have a clear answer as to what worked best for me, um, but I like to leave it kind of ambiguous when I, for the audience because it creates a bit of interesting discussion and there's some real, it makes it cool to look back on and leave it open to interpretation, I think. That makes total sense. And yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by that relationship between Galadriel and, and Halbrand. You know, there's that scene, you know, in the finale where he basically asks her to take his hand and, and essentially rule at his side. What mm -hmm. interested you about that, you know, kind of relationship between the two of them? 
I think the dynamic is fascinating because she is inadvertently pulling him back towards this darkness. She doesn't realize it, but she's giving him the keys to the kingdom. She's saying whether or not he's intending, and he know he's intending for her to do that is interesting, but she is saying to him, come and rule. Uh, she says to him, there is no peace for you here in Numenor. The only peace for you is across the seas, and it's, you know, as uh, the king of men, the king of the Southlands, which then inadvertently becomes Mordor as the king of Mordor. She doesn't know it, but she's drawing him back. And I think when he presents himself to her in the final episode and he basically makes a pitch, he says, let's do this. You can be the queen and I'll be the king. I don't think it's out of romance at all. It's not a proposal. I think it's based on his own personal gain. He thinks he can rule more effectively with her at his side. And if she says no, by no means is it the end of the world. I think he is evil and he is terrible and he, um, in the end, is going to be in charge by himself, whether or not she's by his side. He'll find a way to do that. But at this time, it'll be more effective with her there, I think. Yeah, that makes total sense. And yeah, I, I, it's fascinating because, you know, historically, Sauron has always been depicted as literally a kind of faceless figure. You know, he's, yeah. he's depicted as a giant eye, he's wearing helmets, things like this. And, and the show literally humanizes him. What interested you about sort of exploring, you know, kind of that side of, of this kind of iconic figure? Mm, I think it's super exciting. And I feel really privileged to be able to create this this character and, and, and depict him at this stage of his journey. I think he is the deceiver, right? And he's a shapeshifter. They're foremost of his powers and of which he has many powers, but they're two of his main things. So in creating sort of a human face for him, I like to think of his deception as if he's to deceive Galadriel, if he's to deceive Elendil, Miriel, Farazon, he has to be wholeheartedly invested in what he is doing, in his deception. So for me, it was really useful to think, okay, well, if Sauron is being a, a human, he would live and experience everything as a human in order to comprehensively create this character and deceive. It's like the world's greatest method actor. He's like Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, it's like he has to fully immerse himself. So that was really useful for me in that he would feel and experience things as a human, which then in the, in the eighth episode when he shed that and you really see his full power, that was a really fun thing to be able to play. Yeah, I wanted to ask about some of those scenes where, where you know, he's he basically has that kind of confrontation with Galadriel. What, what do you remember most when you think about, you know, when you think back to you know, like you said, sort of shedding that disguise and sort of revealing himself to her. I remember saying this line, which I can't quite quote word for word. I'm not very good at remembering lines. It's uh, something about, um, I've been awake since before the dawning of the first sunrise or something like that. And uh, that was so powerful for me in just like being able to take a breath and expanding. It was like a physical thing of, everything just settling in the years and years of experience that he's had because you embody this human Halbrand who 
has a certain level of wisdom and a, and a level of power. But as I say, in order for the deception to be um, so comprehensive, you have to, you know, the lifespan is a lot shorter in my mind as the actor. So when I can fully take on and let that world of a Maya into my body, I found that a really amazing moment um, to be able. And I, I remember, I remember when we filmed it, it was like, oh, this is really cool. And then when she tries to stab me with the dagger and he sort of effortlessly like just holds her arm and we've seen how lethal she is. We've seen, you know, what she does to other people and how powerful she is. So for him to just effortlessly hold her and then warp her mind was just, it's just so cool. It's just so like a, a dream to be able to play something like that. Yeah, I imagine that would be fun to like play that physicality. Like you said, it's somebody who is older than the sunrise. Like I imagine that would be a fun world to kind of play in. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, more of this line is always, which makes, you know, uh, she always said the Galadriel is older than the moon. And um, it's so true. She, she is. And then you think about Sauron and, you know, he was there before the music of the Ainur. You know, it's... Um, He's been around a long, long time. Absolutely. Back when he was Maidon, fair. Yeah, I mean, are you somebody who really dove into the lore? Was there like a particular, I don't know, was there like a particular bit of Tolkien's work that you found really helpful or just really stuck with you as you were sort of, you know, trying trying to kind of understand this role? Yes, I loved diving into the lore. I used a lot of it. And in fact, when to help me with the enormity of the task ahead and the enormity of doing this um, character justice. I, I went back to the books and to the source material and that was where I spent a lot of my time was reading and trying to really understand this character from his origins in the first age, right through to the end of Return of the King and the appendices. Uh, as far as things that jumped out to me, there's some really interesting letters um, that Tolkien talks about, letter 131, which, you know, you hear about his repentance and you, and you, you can see Tolkien's perspective on what he wanted Sauron to be. And also that, you know, despite this repentance, he wants Sauron to be thought of as very terrible. Um, and that that's important going down the line that you have to remember that he is evil. He's the epitome of evil. But the letters really informed me in the reemergence of Sauron in that Tolkien talks about how he lingers in Middle-earth and very slowly he reforms. And I think that's there in, in Halbrand. You see a lingering of uh, this evil and you see Halbrand slowly reforming um, from someone who has been humbled and is the lowest of low, floating on the raft in the middle of the sea, to being the king of the Southlands. And then you see the building blocks and how it all re-emerges. That completely aligns with what Tolkien said. And then other stories in the Silmarillion, stories like Baron and Luthien and Sauron's journey in there is, is fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And... Yeah, I'm curious, you know, what's it been like these past couple of weeks as people have been theorizing and speculating? I mean, what's the like the wildest fan theory you heard about yourself? <laughs> I don't I, I don't go on the fan theory things that much. I don't really it's normally sent from friends. So I have had a lot of friends guessing since he first appeared on screen, since he first said looks could be deceiving. Um they've been like, Oh, hang on, what is what's the deal with this guy? Um <laughs> So I've heard some theories from my friends about like 
that maybe there's been a few theories about Sauron. There's been a lot of theories. Uh, the Witch King. Um, the uh, what else has been the King of the Dead has been quite a popular one that my friends have sent me. Um, the guy that Aragorn goes and enlists to fight at the end yeah. of uh, Return of the King. And then I've seen someone sent me a picture of my face next to the King of the Dead's face, which is just <laughs> like this skeleton. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, thanks, man. Thanks very much. That's really kind. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I really see the resemblance between the two. Yeah, but... exactly. It's a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And yeah. <laughs> I'm curious for you. I mean, you know, this show is so massive. It's such a massive production. Um, it has a massive audience. For you, what's the big, been the biggest surprise about this whole process for you? There's been a lot of surprises along the way. I mean, the enormity of the press tour was a bit of a surprise to me and how much of a journey that was really uh, personally because it was it, it's exhausting and, it, it, you know, um, it's very draining and and giving out a lot of energy and was um, a real privilege and a real honour to be able to um, talk about these characters in this way and be a part of the world, but it, it's taxing on you. Um, but to be honest, it was it's really just been a joy, the whole thing, and not, that hasn't been a surprise to me. Um, I guess since the show has come out, I, fear, I had a lot of fear around um, any sort of potential fame and um, uh, any kind of you know, people recognising you or so on and so forth. But to be honest, what's been really surprising and really nice is that life hasn't changed that much for me. And the, the I've been surprised at the times that, that it has happened and the times that I do notice, you know, when I people come up and say hello, it's all really kind and um, everyone has been really generous and nice um, in the interactions, you know, in the street when uh, that's the only difference I've noticed in my life. But otherwise... I lead a pretty quiet life, so uh, I don't really put myself in crowds of crowds of people. So nothing has has really changed. But I, and I think that's probably been a really good, pleasant surprise in itself. Yeah, I mean that's got to be so wild. To, you know, you're in New Zealand. You're making this show for literally years of your life, um, and now you get to share it with people. And now people are actually getting to see the things that you spent the last couple of years making. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, even when I was in New Zealand, you know, I was hiding. I have this secret that, um, you know, this is the where we're currently in the first, going into the second hour of me being able to share it with anyone um, that isn't, you know, the closest of close friends and family and cast members. So it's a bit of a relief. Absolutely. Yeah. Did any of your cast members have funny reactions when, when they finally found out? <laughs> I think... Um, I think there was quite a lot of suspicion because we all sort of knew that Sauron was someone, but no one really knew where he was. So we were all pointing fingers at each other and being like, well, no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I think I don't remember any specific reactions, but I think it was nice for people to get a definitive answer when the time came for everyone to know what was happening. And that, that's got to be like a nice, I love the idea of like distrust even among the cast. It's like, you know, playing a game of... <laughs> of clue or something exactly it's exactly what sauron would have wanted you know no, and no one trusting each other and it's all you know it's all going down absolutely all right great well i will let you go but thank you again so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me uh, thanks Devin. i really appreciate it. it was really nice this has been lovely and congratulations on the season and i cannot wait to see season two. Oh, thank you thank you cheers
All the best. Thank you so much for joining me, Daniel. I am so excited to talk to you um, <laughs> because you have been kind of a walking spoiler for the last <laughs> you know, few years. How are you feeling now that the, the truth is about to be out there? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's fantastic. I was saying, I was, I was saying recently how much when we went to San Diego for the first Comic-Con that we did, um, I, I was suddenly hit by the celebratory nature of what we were able to do, i.e. talk about the project and quite how you know, not difficult, but how how much we need that, like how much in, in any form of art you really need to disseminate your, your work so that people can begin to consume it and, and come up with ideas and their own theories and thoughts about it. So for me, seeing the way that that was beginning in San Diego was really exciting and that has just built all the way through the, the season um, to, to this point where, you know, we were in New York last week, obviously, and, uh, and that was incredible, just the energy that was there. And I think we all feel it as a cast we're all beginning to be able to talk. I mean, I, I am now able to talk about everything that I know on the show. I mean, you are as up to date as I am on The Stranger. So it's great. It's great to be able to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, take me back to when you first got involved in the show. Did JD and Patrick sit you down and say, okay, here's who you're playing. Here's how the season's going to go. No, they didn't. They started it. It was very drip feed at the beginning. So the first, I mean, as with lots of um, auditions now, you know, you might get a side or two to self-tape. And you don't know much about the project. You certainly don't know much about the character. And as an actor, that's a new sort of technique that I think we're all having to uh, come to and learn our best way of getting through that. And so you send, we sent off those sort of things. And, and I felt pretty good about mine, but I had no idea, you know, where it was going to lead. So it was, it, I, and I sometimes wake up in a cold sweat thinking, oh, crumbs, if I'd gone another way there. You know, they would have looked at that and gone, you know what? No, nah, not that one. And and I would never have seen it. So it's it's sort of it's it's one of those moments where you just you just thank your lucky stars that that you did it the way you did it. But then after that, we you know you begin to tell that they like something about the performance or your your delivery or something like that. You get invited in to meet a casting director, and then the sort of notes begin to come. And Theo park who uh, cast this show was uh, sensational I, I found in terms of the way that she was able to note really nuanced ideas without giving you know she also presumably i mean there's a question you could ask her but she presumably knew more than much more than me but she was able to keep things on a sort of need to know basis without meaning that i didn't know what i had to play and so i really felt i was able to give a good account of myself at that audition and then the next step was patrick and jd having a call with me on on uh, zoom and giving me a more of an idea of how they wanted to bring the fact that it was second age how they wanted to bring the characters to life what this particular story might look like at the beginning um the very first first audition i did was with was with text so i had no idea that the season would be progressing with almost no text until i had that chat with them and they gave me a lot of film references uh, to go and look at and they said they would write me a a couple of sides to bring in a sort of physical theatre type of um, performance um, to see how that would fit with their their vision of where this character was going to go. And, you know, I can't remember whether you've met Patrick and J.D. I feel like you may well have. have oh, yeah. Them? I can't remember. Yeah. I've spoken so to them a couple of times. Yeah. So that, that energy that you'll know and the, the, the it's just like, I feel like it's plugging myself into a storytelling network when I when I talk to them. They infuse, they inspire, their energy is massive. They're so well well read. They feed off each other beautifully. And so for me, when I had that long conversation with them on, on Zoom, I began to really get a picture of the character that they 
that they wanted to start with. And these watching these these films, so I went off and watched all of these these films, and uh, I just found they got inside my skin. One of them in particular was extraordinary. They, they gave me the reference of um, Frankenstein, the 1930 uh, Frankenstein. And, yeah. um, and as I was re-watching that, the monster... You know the mon the monster character is the one who sort of has some similarities with the stranger. There, there was there was um, there was this moment when after creation, uh, the monster is sort of tortured and escapes, and when when it's escaping or has escaped and uh, gets out into the countryside, it, it finds itself or he finds itself it's just in this farm, this sort of remote farm, and it comes across this child down by a lake having a game by themselves with some flowers they're just looking at these flowers and they're they're putting them in the water and off they go floating with beautiful flowers and the stranger the stranger the, the monster watches the the this sort of scene and of course i was just in i was petrified for this child and out of the bushes comes this you know we know what the monster looks like terror terrifying and uh, it comes up to the child and you think oh gosh what's gonna happen here this is bad this is bad and very slowly the monster picks a flower like the child has picked and it's seen the, the child smelling the flower so it does the same action it's sort of this sniff in learns how to sniff and we know it's in the moment we know we're with the monster in the moment that it hasn't had an experience like this before and smelling this flower is a new thing and the perfume that is emitted is brand new and so the monster we see on this monster's face this incredible moment of new world joy and then placing this flower like the like the child has done in the water and seeing this thing float and just it's sort of it's sort of blowing this, the monster's mind all these new things it's able to learn about wow how is this happening and then the monster looks at the child and begins to reach down for the child and you think oh there's definitely something here that there's a connection and then the monster picks up the child and you think oh oh well what's going on here and then they look at each other and you're like no it's all thank goodness it's all okay it's all okay. This is innate. This is innate friendship. This is friendship over the joys of what is on the earth. And the monster, whilst he's in this in this position, wades a couple of feet into the water and throws the child into this lake. <laughs> and the child drowns. And from then on, the monster's it's like the monster's storyline has been decided. Because although all these things happened, all the monster was doing was copying you know why was how was he to know that the child wouldn't float like in a as beautiful way as the, as the as the flower on the water but in that moment suddenly the human perception of the monster has totally changed and the monster becomes bad and and the way that the uh, the monster's treated is different and suddenly we're into this world of uh, the writings on the wall you know the the two sides have been drawn they're going to be in conflict and i thought it was a brilliant notes for the stranger i think we well, hopefully we've seen that kind of darkness and light and, and lack of understanding and joy and pleasure and childish wonder and old age sort of wisdom and you know all these things have been rolled into one and what a brilliant character that Patrick and JD have, have written but I really found that chimed for me with um, you know with with the film footage they'd asked me to watch uh, I feel like that's a long-winded uh, answer <laughs> to your initial question apologies no, but that makes total sense. There is that push-pull between, you know, like you said, it could go either way. Like you could, you and, know, did and that I sort felt of, that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I, I was just going to say, with episode, even in episode seven, um, I had this moment where uh, somebody said to me, "Oh, isn't it brilliant in episode seven? The stranger, you know, heals the tree." And I said, "The stranger has been kicked out by then. The stranger doesn't know that the tree has been healed." 
And I was suggesting, and what was nice for me to play in seven was that, and the beginning of eight then, when I met them, when the stranger met the mystics, was that what he's taken is not the tree is is healed. What he's taken away with him is, I've done this awful thing. I've nearly killed Nori and her sister. Like Nori, the, the, the person he cares about probably most, and her sister. I have done something clearly dangerous, so bad that they have ostracized me and sent me on my way. That has given the stranger a feeling of, well, maybe this, maybe that is who I am. Maybe that is who I am. I've been struggling this whole time finding some connection with Nori, but ultimately, maybe there isn't anything. Maybe my purpose is darker than that, and maybe, and that's what he takes into that beginning of episode eight. And that, that felt very resonant with with the sort of the journey of the monster in that early bit of Frankenstein. Um, and I thought it was it was beautifully written by uh, J. D. and Patrick. They sort of they sort of kept well, they kept us all guessing, and yet I never felt I was a plot device. I felt I could always. You know, I could always play the honesty of that moment. So that when we meet him in episode eight and he's with the mystics and they say the energy is clearly different. I mean, we, he can feel that. He can feel this, this darkness from them. And, and I think he succumbs to that in that early part because having just been kicked out, you know, I'm not going to I don't think his heart's broken, but it's, it's you know, maybe the, the Maillard version of that. You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know. He, doesn't, he didn't know what he was. And now here's the new sort of, cradle of uh, support that he's fallen into and it happens to be awfully bleak and he's going to go with it but it's only the turning up of the, the half foot community you know nori and, and her band coming back that um, that is able to turn him away from that i think had they not come to rescue him i think he would have ended up in a different place you know it, nobody is incorruptible let's be honest about this and so not only in tolkien but in 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 our real world and you know i mean enough is written of sauron to know that uh, to know that he wasn't always all, all bad, you know, and um, so I, I very much enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and let's talk a little bit about that that shift in episode eight, where he, you know, sort of chooses to 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 be on the side of good. He's he's sort of yeah. you know shepherded by the Harfoots, and we learn a little bit about his identity. We learn that you know yeah. he is one of the Astar. We we specifically leaning towards one of the specific Istari. Um, I mean, tell me a little bit about what that reveal. Yeah, so so well, what I was trying to portray through the season was that um, this character has never really had a handle on how energy flowed through him. It seemed to flow around him, through him, you know, near him. And at times, at the very beginning, he didn't really even have an understanding that that was because of him. But by the later stages, he understood that he could in some way channel something, uh, although he didn't understand you know how to how to harness it, and so and one of the things we were, we were very keen on, I think, all the way through was that this idea that he was a conduit. He, the stranger in series one, is a conduit for this energy. It's like he's his own divining rod, you know, and and that's why it's so tricky for him to control because it's not really it's not really coming from him. It's not starting from him. It's starting from the energy of the situation he's in, or the, the natural surroundings he's in, or whether whether there is some kind of you know overarching godly whether it's valar or higher you know uh desire to to for something to happen on, on middle earth and so when we get to the situation of the end of eight where we have seen him use his energy or try to use his energy and in seven especially try to control it try to harness it for good i'm not even sure he knows that by by the by this moment in episode eight that it's 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 all okay back at the apple tree but um you know, he, he feels that this is a massive danger to everybody that he is close to. And 
but we, we see Nori turn, don't we? We see her turn away. And I always felt, or the stranger always interpreted that as, it, it was the moment when he became aware that her energy for him was not unending. That her ability to give to him was not unending. That it cost her to support him and to build him up and to teach him and to, you know, to, uh, to help him. And at that moment where she turns and she goes into what looks like, I mean, it looks like the sort of final battle, doesn't it, for the half community who've come to save the stranger. As she turns and goes there, he realizes that he is just a small cog in a much, much greater, greater uh, universe. And that the power that he's got is malleable in a way that he hasn't understood it before. He realizes that good, the idea of good or the idea of lightness or darkness, that these things are more nuanced, you know, and it's sort of in the understanding that it's not one extreme or the other, that it's an understanding of situation and, and what's needed now and, you know, the things that are around you and the people or the beings that are around you. In those moments, it's, it's the, way that, the way that he comes to that realization that enables him to become the conduit, partly through picking up the staff as well, I think. That's a, that is a much more refined way of, uh, you know, um, divining the, the energy around him. Um, but partly through all those things, he is able to find this moment of, um, of harnessing the energy for what he feels for the half community. That in fact, he is suddenly able to communicate with both the mystics and the Harfoots, communicate without words again, really, but with energy. And it's, it's, uh, like, it's almost an out-of-body experience for him, I think, where he becomes at one in a way that we haven't seen him with, with the, the energy of the natural world around him. Yeah, I love that. And, and yeah, we really see him coming into his own. And I mean, I have to ask, you know, we never, we never, we never hear the, the G word. We never hear Gandalf mentioned on screen, but the, the clues are, are, are definitely there. Is that, is it safe to say that, that yes, you're playing Gandalf or is it still a little, little ambiguous? I just go back to the, what I feel like the audience knows exactly the same as what I know. Like I, I haven't yet started season two. And I literally have no more knowledge than, than anybody else now, which is really, actually, actually really great. So you all have the same amount of information. But what I've loved all the way along with this process is that people have taken resonances from different episodes, from uh, you know, different interactions, and they've taken them back to source material and they've applied them in their, own, in their own ways, the way that they interpret a text. Because, of course, every one of us reads you know, Lord of the Rings in a different way, right? What we each get from Lord of the Rings is personal. That's the joy of, of, of the work, isn't it? Um, the fact that it can resonate with so many people is one of its, um, you know, one of its really uh, strongest motifs, the fact that it's going to be timeless. And so for us to, to take some of that and to use it throughout the season, it's been really clear to me that my view about where the character's going is sort of no more justified than than the fan who's been watching it all, who's read all the work, who is now coming up with their, their hypothesis that this must be this kind of character or this must be... I'm not, I'm not going to start saying that, uh, that they've got to think one, one thing or the other um, because as, as far as I can tell, we're all going to go on that journey again in season two. And that journey, it, what would be lovely for me is if we can all do that together in the way we have, have here. It feels like in a world where a lot can be known before you watch episodes based on where certain key characters canon characters have to get to we have i have one of those lovely moments where where actually it's open 
it's open-ended. It's where JD and Patrick are going to take us. And, um, and I've loved listening to people's uh, theories. I've been hugely impressed by people's knowledge. It's been hugely humbling. I felt like there's a massive ownership. I've understood the ownership of these characters and, and storylines throughout the, our globe. And even new, new fans coming in, you know, who, who might not have the same depth of knowledge from the source text are coming up with really, really well thought through personalized ideas of who, especially in my case, the stranger is. And I absolutely want to let them be with those feelings and thoughts as long as possible, because it's sort of where I am now with the character myself. Well said. Well, I will let you go. I don't want to take too much of your time. But before we go, I briefly want to ask about um, just the... The, the friendship between the, the stranger and the Nori and, and Nori is so moving. Yeah. And I, I, I tell me a little bit about working with Markella Cavanaugh because I, I love <laughs> just the dynamic between the two of you. I don't know what I can say about working with her. I, I, I was just, I feel like the luckiest person on the, on the planet to be able to work with her. I thought her talent, her, yeah, her talent, her humanity, um, her friendship uh, on and off screen, you know, is, incredible she is um really really good news and uh i was always in awe of the work that she came up with and most of the time i felt like i was desperately sort of trying to grapple to stay anywhere near her league of work you know i just thought it was so good um i felt humbled and blessed that we we had a connection that was pretty much straight away something went on i think it was greater than the sum of both of us uh, you know as people and as characters and hopefully that's transmitted I, I i found it pretty moving watching the scenes that we have based on you know how we filmed them and the memories that it brings back um and i've certainly spoken to quite a few people who also find find that relationship um hugely resonant but yeah it's, it was a huge joy to work with her i um i i mean it, you know, we, we all sort of formed this family out there because because when we filmed, COVID came along and we were locked down in New Zealand in this free country where we could experience the amazing hospitality of the New Zealand um, population. But also we could, you know, go to cinemas and concerts and rugby matches and we could go in cafes. And that meant that the 22 of us could sort of bond only with each other because we didn't have support networks out there. And so whilst all of us sort of have this family feel, it's true that the people who were in our own storylines sort of resonate even even stronger, and um, I can't even bear to think of you know not you know not having to do not having to have that opportunity to to work uh, with Markella uh, on this on this job, and um, you know I, yeah she's a, she's a pretty important person to me, so hopefully that tells you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and I cannot wait to um, just congratulations on the show, and I cannot wait to to see season two. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to get going, and I hope that while we're while we're making it, that people are still able to go back and rewatch and find new things, because I'm sure the way that JD and Patrick have worked, I'm sure there's all sorts of lovely tidbits for people to go back and find again and find new, you know, just say, oh, have you seen that? One of the things I, I loved most was that you had characters on screen who you could watch, but you could also sort of watch the set and the scenery. And because there were there were, there were storylines in, in the set, the scenery, the, the quality and the creative juices that people who were working on the crew brought to the show that way so you know through the costume as well and through the i just thought it was incredible um you know how much uh, how much storyline was able to appear on that on the screen and hopefully while people are waiting they'll be able to go back and and become even better friends of the characters on screen and 
enjoy that. Enjoy that again. Absolutely. Well, I will be rewatching it, waiting for waiting for season two to come. <laughs> we should do we should do some watch parties now that it's all out in the open. We can talk about it. We should do some big watch parties. Just see if we could break a record for the biggest simultaneous watch party. Absolutely, especially now you can talk about it. That would now we can the, talk about it. Yeah, perfect. Best part. All right, yeah. great. Well, I will let you go. But thank you again so much thanks for so taking much. the time. And it's lovely to talk to you. Our thanks to Charlie Vickers and Daniel Wayman for that insight into the season one finale of Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Our thanks to you for joining us. Just because season one is over doesn't mean that this is the end of All Rings Considered. Make sure to like and follow the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because we have a few more things up our sleeves in the coming weeks. In the meantime, if you want to talk to us about the show or just brag about how some of our theories were wrong, you can find us on social media. I'm at CM Holub. Devin is at Devin Kogan, and you can also read all of our Lord of the Rings coverage, including interviews and recaps on EW.com. Thank you for joining us and Namarie. And that's it for this episode of All Rings Considered. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Devin Kogan and at CM Holub. This episode of All Rings Considered is hosted by Devin Kogan and Christian Holub. Produced by Devin Kogan, Christian Holub, Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Lauren Klein, and Dalton Ross. Edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.